From Relay FM, this is Flashback. This season, we are looking back through technology history to better understand the trends that we see today. My name is Quinn Nelson, and I am joined by the one, the only, the one true, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Well, there is an, another Stephen Hackett who plays guitar for Genesis, but... Well, you're the one true one, though. Mm. I'll take you it. You might not be as famous. Well, actually, you probably are more famous than that Stephen Hackett at this point. I think it's very demographic-based. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> well, Stephen, we have an exciting episode today. And I feel like it, it might be a long one, but we'll, we'll try to keep it short. We'll see. We are going to... Uh, draft dead Google products. Mm. And Expe- explain. So uh, Google has a, a habit they call spring cleaning, and they go through their massive portfolio of, of mostly web-based products, mm-hmm. and they say, we're not going to do these anymore, and they kill a bunch of them. And they've done a lot of this over the years. I feel like it's slowed down recently, but we thought it would be fun to take a look back at some of our... I think the metric is some most memorable or like most interesting things they've killed. I don't know. We we just kind of each picked some, and we're gonna work through our lists. And I've you know I think we both have old stuff and newer stuff. And yeah, Google just uh, they're not afraid to kill something off. You know, Microsoft uh, can't. Apple does sometimes, and Google does it a lot. So we're gonna have a number of rounds. Stephen and I have not shared with each other what our picks are and so in theory there's the possibility that all of our picks are the same right i mean there's like a billion dead things so (laughs) yeah if you knew how many products have been killed by google the 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 likelihood is is quite low actually yeah and there's some famous uh, ones and then there's some uh, not so famous ones and i I can't speak for you because again i don't know what you've Mm. picked but i definitely Mm -hmm. picked some that most people probably won't remember Mm. <laughs> Same here, Stephen. So we'll see how this goes. <laughs> so you want to start us off? Oh, yeah. Round one. It's my turn. Okay. Well, how about we start with something recent, something that was killed this year? Ooh. Yeah, what did right? they kill this year? Tilt brush. Have you ever heard of tilt brush? Nope. At all, ever. Nope. No idea what it is. <laughs> huh. Okay. Well, Stephen, you are in for a treat. So tilt brush is a virtual reality application that Google released years ago. And honestly, it was one of the first, you know, the, you know the first time you sent an email or held an iPhone and you were like, holy smokes, this is the future? Definitely. Tilt brush was the first holy crap moment I had in virtual reality. What would happen was you would put a headset on and you would spawn into this very dark black room. You'd look down at your hands. On one hand, you had a color palette and a brush selector. And then in the other hand, you had a paintbrush. And inside of Tilt Brush, you would literally paint in 3D, in literal 3D. So the app focused on room scale tracking. So your room was your art piece. And as, as large as your room was, that was the size of your canvas. Now, later down the road, they did allow you to kind of move uh, not physically. You could kind of use an analog stick or a teleportation wand to kind of move around. But initially, the idea was, however big your room is, that's how big your canvas is, and you would walk physically walk around your room to draw in 3D. 
And it was, it was really cool. Um, it's amazing the, the type of precision that the brushes would have. Adding a second dimension to, to drawing only further highlighted what an awful artist I am. And it was a really great VR demo. Uh, it was one of the first VR games that I kind of recall being seen en masse, like to the public eye. Um, it was famously shown on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, and the app won tons of awards. And the other thing that was unique about Tollbrush is it was available like everywhere. Uh, it was on almost every major VR platform. So Oculus Rift, Oculus Quest, Windows Mixed Reality, Steam VR, PlayStation VR, the list continues. It was everywhere. And that's not super common, is it, right? Like most, a lot of things are sort of tailored towards the hardware they're running on. Right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, especially so in the sense that, you know, Oculus will have a lot of exclusives, but even, you know, the lesser kind of focused upon platforms, they'll be supported, but not natively. And Tiltbrush truly natively supported almost every major VR headset. And the tracking methods and the controllers would be different, but Tiltbrush would update to accommodate those. Google did a really, really good job. And honestly, incredible art has come as a result. Most famously, there is this this portrait painter who's who's a pretty big deal um, named Jonathan Yeo. And he took 18 months to create a piece of art, what he uh, dubbed, he called the medium painted sculpture. That's cool. Because again, he's a painter, but if you're painting in 3D, it kind of becomes a sculpture. So he quickly starts painting and goes, yeah, this isn't going to work because I can't see my hands and a bunch of problems are, are popping up how can I make this very cool kind of medium of virtual reality art a real thing? And so he goes to Otoy, which is a very famous Hollywood VFX studio, and scans a 3D model of his head with a light stage scanner. And it's those big domes with like, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of cameras inside. Mm -hmm. And it gives you a really accurate 3D version of your head. He imported the 3D head into Tilt Brush, and then he made a self-portraiture which was then, he did it in 3D, and then he 3D printed out all of the pieces in the self-portrait that he painted in 3D in Tilt Brush, and then they cast them into bronze, and it became a real physical sculpture that's like several feet tall. And the Royal Academy of Art actually featured it as a new fusion of technology and art, and it was like talked about in a bunch of blogs and art circles for a long time. Really, really cool. And uh, I think Google kind of further capitalized on this, and they created what was called the Tilt Brush Artist in Resident Program, which that sounds like a very fancy name. <laughs> it wasn't very fancy, but I think it was cool. They would pay and support artists all around the world cool. and have their pieces uh, viewable and obviously paintable in VR. And some of them are incredible. There's actually a website still available that we'll leave in the show notes that showcases some of these artists' 3D tilt brush creations. It, it was awesome. And it seems like everything is, is going really well. Everyone likes tilt brush. And then in January of this year, Google's like, yeah, uh, we're done. And they don't list a reason why. <laughs> Tiltbrush's user numbers had had been at their highest yet, but it was just one of those programs where Google was like, "Yeah, we're, we're done." Luckily, they didn't just kill it. They've open sourced all of the code base, and there are already a number of free and paid derivatives available. Um, the most notable one is OpenBrush, and so Tiltbrush will continue to live on, and that's good. But for whatever reason, Google just decided we're done. Even after they, you know, 
worked with the art community and had a famous portrait shown at the Royal Academy Museum of Art. But I don't whatever, man, I guess that's good enough. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's a shame. I mean, this really seems yeah. like it was a cool cultural thing and they're just letting it go. Yeah, well, see ya. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's that's good. Uh, that's one that I was not aware of. Mm. Uh, I'm I'm gonna go with one of my rare ones here as well. Okay. Yeah. And I'm going to go with Google Touring Bird. Mm. Excuse me? Touring Bird. That's not a thing. Touring Bird. This uh, was around from 2018 to 2019. It's pretty short-lived. And what it was was a service to plan a trip and then cross-shop the elements of that trip. So say, Quinn, that you and I were going to be going to, I don't know, name a city in Europe. Where do you want to go? Um, uh, London. Okay, so then we're going to go to London and we want to visit Mike, see a bunch of the sites, go do the touristy stuff. We right. could have used Touring Bird for the 10 months or so that it was around to uh, look at suggestions and get tips and see what the best prices were for things. Uh, this started in 2018 in, uh, in Paris and then was later expanded to cover 200 destinations. And it wow. included touristy stuff, of course, but tours, free stuff, recommendation from locals and from travel experts. So they would go out and talk to experts and like pull in their recommendations and their content. And it was all kind of put together in this one place where you could see what was going on, compare ideas, and you could purchase right within Touring Bird. So say that you wanted to... You know, we wanted to go see the Tower of London. We could purchase our tickets, potentially, within Touring Bird. We didn't have to go out to all these other websites. Yeah. and uh, well, that it had sounds its, very cool. Yeah, it had its own website, touringbird.com. It was part of Area 120, which is like Google's uh, experimental, weird in-house incubator type thing where a lot of things mm -hmm. come out of, and then they all die later on. As, as, as we'll talk about, but it didn't last very long. And you may think, oh, well, maybe the pandemic killed it. Well, they killed it before the pandemic. They got rid of it in the fall of 2019, and hmm. it was folded into what was called Google's Unified Travel Initiative. I did not know that there was a thing called Google Travel, but apparently there is. Google.com slash travel, and it's trips and flights and hotels and and stuff. Yeah. And so they kind of just melded this all into to one thing, taking the bird out of its flight. And that's kind of a bummer because Touring Bird is a really good, uh, really good name. Uh, that pun. I hate you. Uh, well, hold on, though, because I've heard of Google Travel, but I've only ever seen it for flights. Because, you know, you'll Google like flights from here to here, and then it shows their own, you know, right. flight booker thing, which is you know, good enough to get an idea. And then you go, this is not really usable. And then you go somewhere else. Uh, apparently they do more than that, huh? Google travel. Yeah. That has flights and hotel search and they have uh, bundles, you know, that if you go on other websites, you can like, if you do a yeah. flight through this and then a 
hotel through this place, you know, you get a discount. They have sort of all of that stuff uh, all in under one sort of section now. I don't know how many people use it. Google Travel seems like a thing that could go away, but Touring Bird definitely did. In principle, both of them sound really cool. Because here's the thing. You know, you go on a vacation and you book your flight usually through the airline or through credit card rewards, and then you get your hotel through someone. And most of these booking agencies, like if, if you don't go through the hotel, they never show you the resort fee and the taxes that you'll owe. And then you still owe money when you get there. And then you get to the place and you want to do activities. So you open, I don't know, like um, TripAdvisor and right. they've got a bunch of stuff, but the pricing on TripAdvisor often doesn't reflect the actual pricing of the touring company and you can get it separately through them. Travel's like, it's a big mess, basically. It is. For one company to kind of try and do all of it, I mean, I guess a lot of companies have done it, but you would think that Google would have the resources and ability to kind of do it better than anyone else. And I guess they're trying, but are they? Neither of us have heard of Google Travel. <laughs> so, hmm. I mean, Touring Bird is a better name. It, it actually is a legitimately good name, and I'm sad they killed it. And frankly, you know, Google services, you kind of lose track of them because there's so many of them. Yeah. And I think independent names for like a service that just so happens to be owned by Google is just the better way to go, but... I don't know. Well, rest in peace, Touring Bird. You lasted uh, 10 months, you said? Yeah, it it kind of depends on from where you count. But once they were kind of beyond <laughs> Paris and then the initial 20, yeah, it was about less than a year that it seemed pretty useful. Sad. It is sad. Well, there you have it. I guess we're on to uh, round two now, right? Round two. What, what do you have for us? Yeah, baby. Okay, I have one that you probably have heard of, um, but I don't. I don't know. It's called iGoogle. On my list. Mm, that was on your list? <laughs> it was. I loved it. I used it. D did you? I did. Okay, so for people that are like, what the heck is an iGoogle? Uh, kids these days may not know much about web portals, but uh, they were a thing. And the idea behind a web portal was that you would open up your web browser and it would be like a mashup of a bunch of info from places all around the web. So you'd get aggregated news and weather, email, et cetera, all on one page in a centralized location. And if you go back, I mean, there are still some relics of this. If you go to Yahoo and um, a couple of older school search engines, this is still very much a thing, but iGoogle launched in 2005 to allow users to do this, to aggregate a bunch of info into a customizable dashboard that you could make exactly how you wanted. And they had an API with like a bunch of third-party apps that eventually came out, but I want to talk about a number of their own widgets that you could place on, like on top of your iGoogle web portal that Google themselves developed, because some of them are, are pretty silly. Did you ever use Sidebar, Stephen? Uh, I I did, I think, or I think I tried it, because it was the one that you could tie in, like, chat to it, right? Right. I think I eventually and realized that I just would rather use iChat on my Mac. Yeah, see, originally it launched, and it was pretty crappy, because I think it only supported Google Talk originally, and Google Talk support was kind of hit or miss, and then um, it, you couldn't do a lot of stuff that you could do if you used Google Talk inside of Gmail. So you couldn't send multimedia stuff, for example. And you know, it was kind of just an emaciated version of the chat client that was located in Gmail. 
but it eventually got updates later down the road and integrated um, IRC as well as AIM chat support, which is pretty cool. And and it became, you know, it got to the point where it was like a pretty good little uh, messaging app inside of the dashboard of your web browser, which is pretty cool. Yeah. They also had something called Frame Photo. That probably sounds pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> it was that you could add in several photos and then it would just scroll a little gallery of your own photos every time you opened your web browser, which is, that's a cute idea, right? Yeah, I see pictures then, of, you know, uh, your family or whatever. Yeah, that's right. This one's my favorite because it's just so weird. It's called Google Gram. Now, you might be wondering, what is a Google Gram? <laughs> Let me tell you, what you could do is pre-write up to seven days of messages and then send them to another friend who had iGoogle. And every time they opened iGoogle every day, they would get a new message to greet them from you, their friend. Isn't that cute? Mm, sure. Yeah, okay. So, well, then what did you use, Mr. Hotshot? Things, I mean, like I just pulled up Yahoo in a new tab. Boy, that hasn't changed, but I would have... Uh, you know, whether I'd have my Gmail inbox. They had a widget that was a countdown. So I liked having the countdown, hmm. you know, to various things okay. coming up. Sure. Uh, there was another one that I used a good bit that was just a simple checklist. And you could just, you know, have your little to-do list in there. And hmm. I mean, this is a long time ago, right? This started in 2005 and it ended in 2013. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely of its era, but... Mm-hmm. I, you know, something, the idea about having like a personal dashboard, I mean, that sort of stuck around, right? People use Notion for that today and, and all these other right. tools. And so I think it was a, it was a pretty cool idea, but we, we got to talk about the name real quick. Okay. Well, tell me about the name. It was originally called Google Personalized Homepage, but that was- That's a good name. Very, rolls off the tongue. It's descriptive. But <laughs> 2005, 2006, everything had to have an I in front of it, so it became iGoogle. Why did everything have an I in front of it? Were there, like, popular products iPods, or something? Oh, iMacs. Oh, right. Yeah. Hmm. I remember. <laughs> yeah. So iGoogle, it was a thing. It was, like you mentioned, kind of a product of its time, and it really didn't get updated later down the road. No, it, it so died it, a it slow death. <laughs> yeah, it looked very dated, but they supported it for a remarkably long time. The The writing on the wall for, for iGoogle began in 2011 when Google Plus launched. <laughs> oh, boy. Did you have Google Plus on your list? I had a an item that was like Google's failed social mm. networks. <laughs> so mm. there have been several Google Pluses, maybe okay. the most ambitious. Yeah. Well, Google Plus was, how should I say this? One of Google's most um, tremendous disasters, yeah. they tried to make everything Google Plus in 2011. I remember uh, when I came back from Bolivia, my YouTube channel, I used to have just a YouTube account. And then they said, no, you have to tie this to a Google Plus page. And so every YouTube channel had a Google Plus page. It was like a whole nightmare. And then when oh, Google yeah. Plus went away, I had to detach it. Ew. It was a disaster. But with Google Plus, they were like, hey, you know what? This is this is the future of the web. Everyone's going to be able to share everything through our little circles. And you don't need this little personal dashboard, everything. So they said that iGoogle would be disabled in January of 2012. Uh, but it actually stuck around. It uh, it surpassed its expected life and didn't retire until November 2013. Um, but yeah, in, in the end of 2013, 
It was finally time to go. Mm -hmm. iGoogle is no more. And now if you want a personal dashboard, well, good luck. Actually, there are some Chrome extensions that kind of try and offer the same stuff, but they're just, they're not as good. And it's not tied to your account either. Right. I liked iGoogle. It was nice. It was it was my homepage in Camino for a long time on my <laughs> wow. PowerBook. That's a throwback. <laughs> that's a sentence from 2006. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. What's your round two pick? So you didn't pick Google Plus. I'm not going to pick it here. I'm going to pick its predecessor, Google Buzz. Oh. Google Buzz. Opening closed wounds. Let huh? me just read you the things that Google Buzz integrated into its platform. Picasa, Flickr, Google Latitude, Google Reader, Google SideWiki, YouTube, Blogger, FriendFeed, Identica, and Twitter. That's a lot of things. That's a lot of things. I'm out of fingers. Ten things. It's The idea was you could pull in content from all of those different places. You could share content from all of those places with your friends, and then you would have comments and conversations around those pieces of content. It was a disaster because there were huge, huge privacy issues. For instance, there was a default option in the beginning that Google Buzz would share everyone you had in your Gmail contacts and who you most frequently talked with. Oh, yeah, you you don't want that. That's real, real bad. Uh, it also tied into... And that's when your wife asks, why do you talk so much to Fred from work? Yeah, that's suspicious. <laughs> uh, this led to a class action lawsuit, which is not no. what you want. Yeah. The EFF came against it. The Privacy Commission of Canada came out against it. It was basically dead on arrival because of these privacy issues. You know, in terms of interface, it's like... If you kind of mixed old school Facebook and Twitter and maybe a little like uh, Tumblr, kind of mix all that together. But yeah, it was it was very short lived. February 2010 to December 2011. So not even two years. And uh, Google Plus is what replaced it. But yeah, it was really an issue of Google's privacy Either they didn't see this as a problem, which is problematic, or they Mm -hmm. didn't realize this product did what it did, which may be worse. But yeah, Yeah, Google Buzz was a a real nightmare. That is uh, surprising. Here's the thing. Privacy issues aside, when people talk old, uh, you know, you look at bloggers and you look at people that have been around the internet for the longest time. All of them get agitated when you mention Google Buzz and Google Wave as like two services that were so amazing and they should never have disappeared. And uh, I like the idea in principle. Microsoft actually tried to do things uh, similarly a, a couple of years later with Windows Phone 10. Um, they had the the people feed. And basically, you would open up your contacts list, and it too would aggregate a bunch of different social media accounts and pull information in from all of those. And then what was even cooler, and and this is something that, man, I wish this was still a thing. You know how sometimes you just want to see how a friend or family member is doing, and you got to, you know, they haven't posted on Facebook for a while, so you go to their Instagram, and there's not much there. So you go to their Twitter, and they're really active over there. It's just hard to, to find stuff from a specific person if, if you want to, because algorithms and everything. Well, yeah. inside of Windows 10, sorry, we're not talking about Google anymore, you could go into your contact 
for that individual. And it would show you a feed of all of the social media networks they were on and aggregate them into a single list. And so you would see the Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Flickr posts from that one individual person, which was really pretty cool in my opinion. And uh, it never really ended up uh, existing for very long, mostly because, and this is probably understandable, uh, these are a bunch of different companies and they would make policy and API changes and it was just difficult to be able to put those all in the same place. And frankly, you know, the tides have changed. You look at Twitter, for example, they used to have a really good, I mean, originally they had a public API. There was, there was no official Twitter app. If you wanted to use Twitter, you could use the website yep. or a third-party client. And now they've really tried to kind of restrict new features to the official Twitter app and the official Twitter app only. But that's how they get ads and, in front uh, of you. Because, yeah, they, they want to make money. So it makes sense. But and, and Google Buzz would have, you know, had a similar fate if not for all of the... Uh, privacy issues but it's too bad because i dream about a network that's you know just a combination of all of them we'll never get it M mega mm. network yeah something. okay sure that's the name mega network all right so we have picked some some real winners here uh tilt brush touring bird i google and google buzz mm. but we've got some more to go but let's take a break okay this episode of Flashback is brought to you by Command Line Heroes. It's a podcast that tells the epic, true tales of developers, programmers, hackers, geeks, and open-source rebels who are revolutionizing the technology landscape. Season 7 is ongoing now, and it is exploring the pivotal year of 1995. It was the start of the dot-com boom, but a lot of things had to come together for the internet to succeed. Things like web design took a while to become a career, but it did get a big boost in 1995 when the Batman Forever website launched to promote the movie. It showed people what was possible with the web, and it really recounts the shift that would forever change the face of the internet. I just listened to that episode yesterday. It was fantastic. Mm. Uh, you know this little thing called uh, DNS? You know, you, yes. you, t you type... Uh, I don't know, relay.fm, and it goes to a server. Uh, that was mm -hmm. not the way things used to be. DNS had to be invented. And before it did, you would have to call Elizabeth Jake Findler to see where the domains were. You had to call a person, and they had this big phone book, and they look it up for you. So DNS had to be invented for the internet to take off. I have really enjoyed this season of Command Line Heroes. It's always fascinating to hear about how the technology we have today, sometimes it wasn't planned the way that it ended up, and sometimes uh, that's good, and sometimes you end up with Flash. You know, uh, things happen. Hmm. Search for Command Line Heroes anywhere you listen to podcasts. There'll be a link in the show notes. Our thanks to Command Line Heroes for the support of this show and Relay FM. All right, hit me with your next one. Okay, Stephen, are you young and hip enough to remember Bump? Uh, of course I do. Okay, well, that's a trick question, because if you remember it, you're old. Oh, um, no. Bump launched in 2009, and it was an, an app that allowed mobile users on both iOS and Android to share data between one another. Think AirDrop, but with photos, contacts, files, etc. before AirDrop was a thing. Yeah, so I remember. You would, it was cool. Yeah, you'd open up this app. And you would confirm what it was that you wanted to send to someone else. And then, and this is not a joke, you would bump 
your phones together like a fist bump <laughs> and you think, that, you think that that was kind of just like a gimmick right that that didn't really actually do anything well that's wrong because telemetry data accelerometer readings ip addresses location etc those were all sent to bump and their algorithms would determine which two phones have just bumped into each other and then it would transfer the corresponding data in between phones over the internet it's a bananas idea that sounds like going around your elbow to get to your ear, mm-hmm. but with the technology in iOS and Android at the time, there weren't a lot of alternatives, right? It was it was kind of a clever way to get around some things that uh, that were in place. But why are we talking about this in a Google episode? That's a great question, right? Well, I'm not telling you yet. <laughs> <laughs> Bump goes, yeah, because this is not a Google product. This is from a company called Bump Technologies. Bump got really popular. Sales yeah. were bumping, you know? Yeah, that's... Mm, never say that again. In 2011, it was number eight on Apple's list of all-time most popular free iPhone apps. Whoa. Which is pretty impressive. That and is impressive. by February impressive. 2013, it had been downloaded on iOS and Android over 125 million times. Th- those are, you know, dumb numbers nowadays. But back then, that was impressive. And this is another fun factoid about Bump Technologies, which has no relation to Google whatsoever. They uh, even worked with PayPal to help develop PayPal's original iPhone application. And the original PayPal app was pretty limited. Uh, You could view your account balance. I think you could send money by typing in someone's email address. But then you could also bump people money by tapping your phones together. Sound familiar? Yeah. It was just like Bump because Bump helped develop the app. Yeah. It's like, hey, I got this cool idea. Your app should do what our app does. We know how to build that. <laughs> That's right. So it's a pretty good idea. Now, there are some issues on the horizon, right? AirDrop uh, eventually exists, and that is a much better way to transfer files because while only iOS to iOS or iOS to Mac, um, it, it used an ad hoc connection. So you didn't have to send stuff over the internet. It was direct from device to device. Uh, additionally, the proliferation of k- kind of just better ways to send media came around. So you had messaging apps like WhatsApp and, and iMessage and Facebook Messenger that could handle multimedia transfers. You could send photos. You could send contact information. There was a way to do it easily without the necessary kind of interface of a dedicated app to do that. So I think Bump Technologies, which again has no relation to Google whatsoever, um, this is very relevant, trust me. Uh, they're like, okay, well, this clearly isn't going to last forever. Bump is a cute idea, but why don't we start a new app? And so they do, and it's called Flock. And it is an iOS-first photo sharing app, but there is an Android version that comes out later, released in 2012. And what it did was pretty creepy. So this is where Google starts to come into the picture, obviously. Um, <laughs> it would use geolocation data that was embedded into the EXIF metadata on your photos. And then it would also use a user's Facebook connection to find pictures of friends and family and put everything in a single shared album. So if you took a a picture of your friend Richard and Richard had Flock, he would open up the Flock app and every picture that anyone had ever taken of Richard would automatically show up in Richard's feed. Now, there was, of course, privacy settings where you could say, hey, don't just send people the photos that I've taken of them until you you know, right. I approve it. But uh, the idea was that, and I actually think, you know, privacy issues aside, it's kind of cool where you could connect with a bunch of your friends or family members. I mean, you know, the people talk all the time about how broken uh, the Photos app 
you know, family sharing libraries are. And if you could say, hey, every picture of these six people, always put them in the same album from everyone. That's kind of a cool idea. And so, you know, Google's uh, not one to not buy cool ideas. They buy the company in 2013, but they almost immediately kill off both of the apps, shutting them down in 2014. Now, that's not atypical always with with acquisitions, and a lot of people will consider them acquihires. So they really, they buy the company for the people, not the apps. But Google dismissed the idea that it was an acquihire, and they stated that they would be taking features from Flock and integrating them into Google Photos. Now, looking at Google Photos today, I don't, I don't really know what they would have taken. Maybe face detection, but you'd think Google would probably have that on their own and better. I, I don't know. So apparently Flock lives on somehow, some way today. Well, maybe by today it's fully dead, but at some point Flock was involved hmm. with Google. And uh, yeah, two very kind of early mobile apps that were very good ideas, super simple, but good ideas. And then they were purchased and murdered relentlessly. Yeah, they they flocked mm. it up. Please stop. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to go way back in time with my next one. Okay, let's hear it. Google Desk Bar. Uh, what now? Google Desk Bar. Uh, what now? It, it, <laughs> it is a was, was, because uh, this was alive from 2003 to 2006. Oh. It was a Windows application that stuck a Google search box in the taskbar on, on Windows. So if you're running, uh, oh. uh, you know, Windows 2000 or XP, whatever you were doing, it would, over on the right-hand side, you get a little Google search bar, and you could type into it, and you could search a bunch of different things. And it had keyboard shortcuts to control what sort of search was executed on the term you gave it. So you could search uh, news or images or the web, and you could... Uh, hit enter and it would pop up a little browser window from the taskbar and like a little mm. mini little baby browser and you could see the results and you know now we think about you know spotlight or alfred or even windows uh, uh whatever they're calling it cortana search and windows 10 mm-hmm. the line between searching the web and searching your computer has been blurred yeah but in 2003 they were really different things. And in fact, the combining of those things is what killed this product uh, when Google Desktop came around that did search your local machine and the web kind of from one starting place. But this would give you the power of Google anywhere you were in Windows. So DeskBar originally didn't search files locally on your machine. Correct. It was a it was a way to quickly search okay. the web from within Windows itself. I gotcha. I was gonna say, wow, Windows used to have functional local search. Why'd they take it out? <laughs> well, that sounds like a pretty good idea. I think it's pretty cool, especially from the time. Oh, so it required Windows ninety eight ME two thousand or XP and IE five or five point five or greater. So it's it's of its time, but. It was really, best I can tell, one of the the early successful attempts to sort of bring web search down to the desktop. So you didn't have to go out to a browser and start your search. You could just be working, you know, in a Word document and need to look something up and with a keyboard shortcut, have your 
search, you know, executed really quickly. I think that's pretty cool. I think so too. And, and here's the thing. I mean, I, I think there's still potential in this market. Like look at Spotlight, for example, on the Mac and on the iPhone. You can type a term and if you don't get results locally on your machine or, you know, if it's not through an app that's supported natively by Apple, like if you type a word, it will often recommend you open that word in the dictionary, which exactly. is helpful. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of other contexts where I wish it would do more with the web, where really the only options are search the web for this term, open this term in Wikipedia, and then what else? Is, is Wolfram Alpha still a default option? I don't I th- think so. I think it's been removed from Spotlight, but I use Alfred anyway, so I don't, I don't know. Mm. I do too. Alfred is a, you know, I love Alfred, but it's still, uh, hmm, how do I phrase this nicely? Alfred is really powerful if you know what you want the end result to be. Well said. And so it's really good to say, hey, search this term on this specific website. And there are so many websites that are supported by Alfred and you can add more if you want. And it's cool, but you still have to be able to tell the the tool what you know, service you want to search through. And it would be kind of nice to use natural language or whatever to just type something out and then to have the correct service just respond in kind. But we're still not there yet, really. All it so. could be all of it could be smarter. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that desk bar comes from a time where that wasn't super necessary. Hmm. That you were either searching the web in its entirety or your computer. Okay. And again, those lines are so blurred now. It's it's hard to tell them apart sometimes. Well, that sounds kind of cool. I like Desk Bar. I think it'd be cool. You know, just have it in your uh, taskbar on Windows 98. Bring it back. <laughs> I want it on Windows 98. <laughs> it probably doesn't work anymore, I'm yeah. sure. But yeah, uh, and Oh, by the way, I should say, it also had plugins, mm. uh, but you had to write them in .NET, so rest in so peace. So there were no plugins. <laughs> so there were no plugins. <laughs> Don't email us .NET developers. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, sorry. Okay, and now, wait, is this the last round now? Uh, We are now in the last round. Oh, wow. But we're going to do some bring out your dead, so we're going to do some that didn't make it, and I've, I still have several, so. Okay. All right, Stephen, um, have you ever heard of Android? Is that the one that came on the Palm Prix? Mm, not quite. So the year is 2011. Android is growing pretty quickly basically killing every mobile platform in terms of year-over-year growth. Now, there were still platforms that were larger than Android, but they were growing quick and fast, and it's it's understandable, right? <laughs> Android was open. It was able to be used by any OEM. It was fairly powerful. And Google envisioned Android kind of like a disease, just spreading everywhere, wow. way further than just your phone, because thinking just... Is that the, what, the analogy you want to use in 2021? So Corona Android was um, <laughs> okay. So so Google <laughs> Android at home. Tell me about it. Mm, mm. Android at home. Oh, you spoiled it. Yeah. So so they they announced a new feature in Android OS called Android at home. Now it's almost if you if you notice me stumbling over that, that's because it is Android space the at sign space home. 
it, it makes it impossible to search for it on Google. Oh, it, it like literally, even if you put it in quotes, you can find like maybe two articles ever. And uh, well, that's because it was garbage. Um, Google said that the framework would be pinnacle in the, the smart home future. You could control game consoles and lights and applications, or excuse me, appliances, irrigation systems, basically anything that anyone could dream up. And yeah. at the same time, they announced and launched Project Tungsten. Now, you'd think, oh, that's probably something to do with lights, because tungsten's a... Well, no, you're wrong. Um, <laughs> it was basically a number of prototype hubs, and these hubs had different purposes. One of them acted as an endpoint for Google Music, but also as a bridge to the Android at Home network. So it would run Android, it would talk to your smart lights, but then you could also play music through that little box to your home stereo system. Now, this is before, you know... Alexa and all of these other, uh, oh shoot, I shouldn't have said the word, beep that out, Stephen. Beep. Thank you. And all of these kind of smart home speakers came into play. There's another uh, tungsten hub that they demoed that was pretty much the same as the first one, more focused on music, and this is my favorite thing ever, okay? It sported NFC. Now you might think, Okay, big deal. I mean, NFC in 2011 is new, and, and it's kind of the cool thing. Sure. Google shows in this demo, this was published on the internet. They thought this was a good idea. They thought this was the future. Someone comes home from the store, and they've got in their hand a brand new audio CD. Yes. This is 2011. And they tap the CD on top of the tungsten hub, and it automatically adds that album to their digital Google Music library. Couldn't you just do that without buying the CD? Mm, no, no, because that doesn't make any sense. And then what you could do in the future is let's say you're sitting in your living room and you're like, man, I really want to listen to that album. You would get up off your couch, find the CD in your collection of CDs, tap the CD on the tungsten hub. It would again scan that NFC tag and it would start to play the album. Wow. <laughs> That's incredible. This is late 2011. And uh, CDs were kind of already at this point, like pretty much dead. What you've done is you turn the CD into a remote control. Mm -hmm. Or like a Frisbee to hit the buttons <laughs> on the box, you know? Yeah. Well, Android at Home, as you may guess, because I guarantee you, you've never heard of it because I've never heard of it. Not that I know everything, but I sure care about smart homes, and boy, I have never, ever, ever heard of this. Uh, it, it didn't take off. Uh, Tungsten, that never launched. These little hubs never became a thing. And the company that Google partnered with on stage and said would be selling Android LED light bulbs, they never happened. And Google went four years. This was, this was 2011 to 2015. This is like a hot time in the smart home market. They went four years without saying anything about Android at home, even though the framework continued to exist in Android. And they found themselves kind of investing in the smart home differently. Uh, most famously and perhaps most popular, um, Nest. Nest was kind of, as far as I'm concerned, the first really big mass market smart home thing, but it was just, it was a thermostat. It wasn't you know, this is going to change the smart home and all these devices are going to be interconnected and they'll be centrally controlled. Like, no, it, it was a thermostat and it was cool. It was nice. But it was a, a very narrow scope compared to, to what Android at Home really intended to be. And uh, people may not remember this, but Google was really late to the smart home race. By 2015, uh, Apple had announced HomeKit 
the Alexa smart device ecosystem was growing rapidly. It launched in 2014 and just picked up a bunch Beep. of users like crazy. Oh, thank you. And then <laughs> Samsung, they had purchased smart things. All of these companies are getting into the smart home race. Android at home is still like, hey, guys, what's up? And, uh, well, it just never really became what it promised to be. So Google killed it quietly in 2015 and entered the smart home game pretty late with Google Home, which is now known as Google Nest. Um, and it launched a smart uh, kind of home voice assistant to compete with the Echo and, and everyone else. But uh, that was in 2016. So, so Google's really kind of smart home platform is not even five years old yet. But uh, because of how easy it was to produce devices for Google Home certification and because of how well it eventually was built into the Google Assistant and Android, um, the, the Google kind of smart home ecosystem is, is very healthy, um, probably healthier than Apple HomeKit, to be honest with you, and not healthier than Alexa because the Amazon Echo platform has like nine bajillion devices, Beep. but it's a little more elegant, should I say. So they ended up doing well in the long run, but Android at home, maybe it was just before its time, or maybe it was just really bad. I don't know. You decide. I think it was bad. <laughs> yeah, I do too. I do too. <laughs> All right. I'm going for the emotional hit with this with my last regular pick, and it is Sparrow, which was initially... Uh, a Gmail app, third-party Gmail app for the Mac, and later the iPhone. I don't know if you remember this, but the beginning of the App Store, there were rules saying that you couldn't write a third-party app that would duplicate tasks done by first-party apps. So you couldn't sure. make a podcast yeah. client or a calendar or an email mm -hmm. client. Can you imagine what the antitrust situation would be today if that rule was still in place? It'd be <laughs> game over. <laughs> but Hey, maybe the built-in apps would be good, though. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> uh, but uh, Sparrow was actually the first third-party email client on the iPhone in March 2012. It had been on the Mac for a little while before that, but they brought it to the phone. It looked incredible. It had a lot of really nice and interesting features, including some things we take for granted now, like automatic photo updating of your contacts. You know, now you can, mm. you can do that with iMessage, but a Sparrow could do that. It looked really nice. Um, it didn't have push email because that wasn't a thing that Apple allowed in those early days, but pretty great. And a lot of us used it. Google wanted in on this action too. And they said, hey, we have Gmail. What if we just stick it in a uh, in an app, put it on the iPhone? But it was pretty bad uh, at the beginning and definitely right. pared way down from its Android version that was pretty good by this point. And so Google went out and bought Sparrow for $25 million in July of 2012. Wow. So it was on the App Store for just a few months, uh, on the iPhone at least. Yeah. And they said, um, they're not going to get any new features. We're going to shut them down. It was it was an uh, acquisition hiring situation. And uh, they said, we're going to fold this work into Gmail. And we also got, if, if you remember this, a lot of people really loved it, uh, Google Inbox, which was a alternative Gmail client from Google hmm. that did kind of some of the stuff that Sparrow did and definitely built on its reputation of being nicely designed and, and helpful to use. But a lot of people were really sad uh, that Sparrow went away. And, and later there was Mailbox, which got bought by Dropbox and killed. But Sparrow was a, a big deal because it was the first email app on the App Store and 
really beloved by a lot of people, and Google came in and and bought it and um and killed it. I've now picked two bird things. I don't know what that says, but caw. That's what that says. Yeah, here's the thing. I remember Sparrow, and and it was good, and I do remember it kind of as as one of the first modern email clients. Yes. It's amazing how much better email has gotten in the last 10 years, and yet it's amazing how awful email still is. <laughs> Please send all of your feedback to Stephen at Relay. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> You're going to email me feedback about email? So that just about finishes it, right? That, those were ev- that was every single product that uh, Google's ever messed up on. That's all 650 of them. Oh. Yeah. Oh, there's more. We're going to take another break, and then maybe we kind of talk quickly through what we had less, uh, left on our lists. Sure. Now, this episode is also brought to you by Focused, a show from Relay FM. Pure, undisturbed focus is something of a superpower these days. There's so many distractions. It's hard to stay focused during work or doing hobbies. If you've been meaning to get focused, this is the show for you, because hosts David Sparks and Mike Schmitz can show you how. Previous episodes have included The Big Reset, which is all about making big workflow changes and setting new defaults, roles and goals about how they work together, and a really fascinating episode with Brittany Smith about ADHD and cognitive science and how that, that interacts with all this other stuff. So go to relay.fm slash focused or search for focused wherever you get your shows. There's also a link in the show notes for you to go check it out. All right. I want to start with Picasa, which hmm. in things that we've spoken about, one of the longest lasting products, really from kind of depending on how you count it, 2002 uh, as a third party thing. It was acquired by Google in 2004 but then officially wound down in 2016. So a really long run. And Picasa was a couple of things. It was a, a PC app that lets you organize your photos. So you could have albums, and it supported uh, sorting by metadata, so things like keywords and uh, later face recognition, geotagging, that sort of stuff. So, I mean, on the Mac, we had iPhoto, and now we have photos. Picasa, for a while, for I think for a better part of a decade, was kind of the answer on the PC for that sort of thing, for a lot of people. And later on, we got uh, Picasa Web Albums, which was sort of an online extension of that. So you could upload your photos from the Picasa desktop client to Web Albums think kind of like Flickr, you know, uh, this was relevant the same time yeah. Flickr was. It lets you store and share photos in public albums. Uh, you had 15 gigabytes of free storage, which was a lot, a whole lot back then. And you could even mark photos or albums uh, for private use where you would basically send somebody a secret link and they could view them. You know, now we have iCloud photo library and Google Photos and Amazon has an offering and there've been other third parties that have come and gone over the years. But when I think about dealing with photo management, like in the XP days for my Windows using friends, they all used Picasa. Mm-hmm. And for a mm-hmm. long time, I felt like anytime I was getting sent a photo online, it was either a Picasa web album or on Flickr. And you know, now Google Photos is different. Google Photos doesn't have like the public album stuff quite the same way but Picasa was important for a lot of people for a really long time 
There you go. Picasa. Uh, I never used Picasa, but uh, I can respect it. Yeah, I mean, I, I was a Mac user. Uh, they did eventually have an iPhoto plugin, so you could oh, so you cool. could upload to Picasa Web from iPhoto. You know, they had that for Facebook and some others too for a while. Yeah, they have a very iconic logo. Even though I never use them, I know exactly what their logo looks like. Yeah, it's good. you recognize it. <laughs> yeah, it's very colorful. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, mine is uh, Loon. Do you remember Loon? Uh, I that's the is that the internet from the sky? So it's a it's the latter half of the word balloon, because that's what they were. They were these massive, massive balloons that would be launched up into basically the the very top of the, the atmosphere to where it's basically in space, and then the balloon would chill with this little. Uh, kind of like microwave-sized box that would beam down internet to the Earth. Now, you might think, why would anyone want this? <laughs> well, because in theory, it allowed uh, internet connection for that could be quickly deployed. So if uh, infrastructure went out, then it could be utilized. But it was also focused on kind of the last billion. So not the next billion, but but the last billion. So so for third world countries, it's long been proven that one of the most important uh, tools to kind of to get out of poverty is to be able to have access to information and to be able to have education. And the internet is an excellent way to provide both of those things. And so if you can provide internet to everyone on the planet, that's, that's a good thing, uh, mostly. Unless you watch stupid things on the internet, like my videos. But anyway, <laughs> um, generally, it's a, it's a really good idea. And Loon seemed promising. It was so promising, in fact, that Google, uh, the Google X division, spun it off into its own company under Alphabet, yep. like Waymo and like a couple of others. So Loon, parent company, uh, was, was Google, now Alphabet, uh, kind of graduated from the early days of, of, hey, let's make this work in 2013. And Loon actually did end up launching its first commercial internet service in Kenya in um, July of uh, 2019, I believe, so recently. And uh, the fleet comprised of 35 balloons that covered an area of 50,000 square kilometers. So pretty cool. Um, and, and Loon also provided internet services during, uh, like famously, the 2017 Puerto Rico uh, Hurricane Maria disaster and in Peru following an earthquake in, in 2019. So it is cool. Um, the problem is, is that it, it never, I, I guess, seemed profitable or, or viable. And so it was shuttered very recently, in fact, in January of this year. Um, and I think it's also potentially because other competitors like, um, of course, SpaceX's Starlink and a couple of other more perhaps modern takes and uh, perhaps more expensive uh, initially, but cheaper in the long run options to get uh, internet to the, the rest of the globe have kind of come into play. So Google Loon, really good idea, uh, really good for its time, but uh, never really kind of hit a mass market. A little bit of a bummer, but hopefully we can continue to get uh, internet to everyone in the world, right? Yeah, but but like you said, I mean, there, there are lots of um, other people working on this. It is, uh, it's an important... Right, right. Google has given up, but it's yeah. it's not not like we've stopped yeah, trying. your boy Elon's doing it with uh, Starlink. Not my boy, but yeah, someone's boy. <laughs> Hashtag not my boy. My boy. <laughs> uh, I got two left. How many do you have left? I have one left, so this is perfect. I'm going to go with works with Nest. 
you mentioned in the regular rounds Google's uh, failed starting place in the home, and one thing they tried to um, they tried to jumpstart that with was buying Nest. They bought them in 2014 for 3.2 billion dollars. At this point, Nest had a thermostat and some cameras they bought from another company. <laughs> But it was going to be the backbone. That's right. That's right. Dropcam, right? I'm pretty sure. Uh, They were going to be the backbone for Google's home stuff. And um, how that's worked out is very complicated. There's not a lot of new Nest stuff. There have been a couple new products, and one of which they've killed. They've killed the Protect, which is like the security pad. And uh, they Mm -hmm. have the smoke alarm. But there's not this like huge ecosystem of what we think of Nest hardware. Nest has basically become a brand for Google to stick other products under. Right. But part of Nest was the, quote, works with Nest program. And it was the way that things like the Amazon Echo and a bunch of third-party apps could interact with your your cameras or your uh, your thermostat. And I, I used some of that stuff because... Uh, Nest itself didn't have a lot of automation tools, and so there were some third parties that provided automation tools through this platform. And in 2019, Google announced that they were turning it off. People freaked out. I actually want to read you a little bit from the announcement because it's wild. Mm -hmm. So this is Google. We recognize that you may want your Nest devices to continue to work with other connected ecosystems, such as the Amazon Beep that uses works with Nest. Mm. The current Nest Home skill for Amazon Echo and other partner ecosystem integrations will not work with migrated Google accounts. So part of this also, Quinn, was, and you can still be in the old system at least for a little while longer, they wanted everybody with a Nest account to migrate to just signing in with your regular Google account. And once you did that, all the works with Nest stuff died. Oh, And uh, they said, oh, we're exploring with Amazon and a quote, a few other ecosystem partners to rebuild these connections. And now some of them have come back. Some of them haven't. But uh, I really picked it because I think it's an example of how Google's been rather, a rather disappointing parent for Nest, I think. Mm -hmm. And and I'm deeply invested in the Nest ecosystem. I have a lot of their stuff. And I I think like it's just kind of, is not really doing much with it. And uh, and this was a, you know, I get it from the security standpoint and and I, I did migrate over, but at the same time, like it did, it did break a lot of things people were reliant on. And I just, I just, I'm so disappointed that Google hasn't really pushed Nest in some new directions. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's frankly kind of ruined the brand for me because I've gone so far as to specifically not buy Nest products because of my perceived negligence on Google's part. Yeah, they haven't really updated stuff that it's not, you know, on the kind of cutting edge with some of the other stuff that it it doesn't work with as many ecosystems and integrations, which is a it's a that's a big one when it comes to the smart home, because you don't want to invest in a single ecosystem to have that bought out or taken away or whatever. You really want to have a bunch of devices that can work on multiple different platforms if that either goes away or you decide to change. And uh, it's really a shame because the Nest hardware continues to be some of the best hardware on the market. And, And the integrations, when they work, are so good. 
but I often just feel that it's kind of purposely being hamstrung. Yeah, for kind of protectionist reasons, and then also because lazy Google reasons, and it's uh, it's frustrating. Yeah, if I were starting over today, I would not be invested in in a bunch of Nest cameras, but I was when they were standalone, and so now I'm right. I kind of have them. But if they start right. dying off at some point, I will go back with something else. I'm sure. I don't know what, but uh, for the same reason Ooh. you've said, is I just not sure about their longevity. Yeah. Good news is there are some really, really good. I mean, I think we finally hit the point where a lot of really inexpensive smart home stuff is coming, and a lot of it is really awesome. Yeah. Someone should make a, a YouTube video about that. <laughs> right. You look at like the new Arlo stuff, and Arlo is a sub brand of Anchor. Um, they are really, really good from a cost standpoint. Their integrations are excellent, and Anchor has a good reputation. I mean, it's not some shady company that you don't know, you know where stuff is going to and from. So anyway, smart home, it's getting better. Everyone's excited. I'm excited. Uh, let's talk about pie. Ooh. Good dessert, right? Well, have you ever heard of Android Pie? Uh, yeah. It's, um, it's when you cut robots up. Mm-hmm. And put them in a crust and then bake them for uh, forty minutes at two hundred and fifty degrees. I don't know how. That's right. Baking works. That don't listen to me. <laughs> That's right. Well, we're not talking about Android Pie um, or the other, the real Android Pie. This is called Pie, and it was a mobile workplace chat app. That the best way I can explain this is Slack. Uh, it, it was Slack. <laughs> and the irony is that this was released after Slack already existed. So it was kind of Slack, but its its selling point was that it was simple. It didn't have the many features that Slack did. And I thought to myself, Slack has a lot of features? <laughs> so it was apparently even simpler than Slack. And uh, it was this little app made by this tiny little company. And Google comes out of nowhere and goes, yeah, we want that. Now you might think, why? The the quick answer would be, well, that's because Google doesn't know how messaging or people talk to each other could ever, ever work, and they still haven't figured it out. Oh, yeah. They they continue to struggle with that. I mean, <laughs> there's a whole episode about that somewhere, I think. Yeah. But that's, that's not really the reason. Um, Google had opened uh, their new Asia-Pacific headquarters in Singapore, and the idea was that they could get a lot of developers from the Asian Pacific area to develop ideas for that specific market. Hmm. And they had an executive, um, and this is literally his title. Are you ready for I this? Am. The VP of the next billion users. I was not ready for that. <laughs> that is his official corporate title. Um, his name is Cesar Sengupta. And uh, he's a very smart guy. He basically laid out the hurdles for internet access across the developing world and said, this is a quote, these aren't easy problems to fix, but we would like to do a better job of addressing them. That's why we're building a new engineering team in Singapore to get closer to the next billion users coming online and to develop products that will work for them. That was the idea. And they wanted to increase the number of engineers obviously working overseas, especially, you know, people who were residents or, or from that those countries originally that were now working in the U.S. for Google, they wanted to relocate them to get them closer back to home, um, to be able to kind of uh, work and live in the areas where they're developing products for. And so they purchased the little company called Pi because the developers were apparently very good. There were only 10 of them, really small team, but they were all Singaporean natives and they returned to work at Google. Um, I mean, they returned 
to Singapore to work for Google. They were in the, the US. And Google initially made it sound like it was going to contribute to kind of fund the app or develop it into something else because it already actually had a pretty decent user base and had raised a few million dollars in a Series A funding round. But Google just shuttered the app completely, like weeks after acquisition. And so it was it was clearly an acquire to the max. And uh, well, the Asia Pacific headquarters are still around. Um, I, I looked at the the numbers, and they only have a couple dozen engineers there. So I don't I don't think it ever ended up being as as massive or as successful as they intended it to be. But it's still there. And Sengupta, the the VP of the Next Billion Users, he left Google literally last week. Whoa! Uh, on seemingly good terms <laughs> after fifteen after fifteen good years at Google. So good for him, and he's starting something new. So. There you go. But that's Pi, and not the Android Pi, and not the other Android Pi. Just Pi. Just just Pi. It's Slack. Yeah. That's a weird one. That is weird. I can't believe we made it this far, but I'm glad it's last. <laughs> reader. Oh, I thought you were going to say Google Glass. Google okay. Wave. Google There's reader. so many. Like uh, Everyone has their favorites mm. that we haven't done. I loved Google Reader so much. Uh, came out in 2005. And it was the first way that I, and I think a lot of other people, really got into reading websites via RSS, something I still do Mm. to this day, you know, whatever, 16, 17 years later. RSS is great. RSS is great. I don't use it, though. I don't use it, though. I get all my news on um, TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) You're too old for TikTok, aren't you? I am. I don't even have an account. I don't either. Mm. So Google Reader was, uh, it it took a lot of the good things about Gmail, right? Web-based, accessible everywhere, eventually a mobile site, and applied it to RSS. So you could go in and subscribe to a bunch of websites. You could organize them into, into folders. I think they called them collections. And you could keep up with the news. Uh, and uh, as opposed to going around to a bunch of different websites, you could just subscribe to them all in one place. Hmm. It really got better for the first several years. So in 2006, it got a redesign and uh, some features we now kind of view as just table stakes for RSS reading, like mark all as read, folder-based navigation. In 2007, you could bring in content from YouTube or Google Video. Remember what we said earlier about Buzz, about yeah. companies don't necessarily want their content in an aggregator like this because you can't see the ads? That's right. what a lot of people think killed Google Reader. Uh, I, I kind of, I mean, I, I buy that, I think. There's even business models, including my own at 512 Pixels, that I have sponsorships that go into the RSS feed because I know by looking at my numbers, oh. I have a lot of readers that don't ever visit my site that just read through RSS. And that's, You're smart. Uh, I think a lot of that credit is due to Google Reader being really popular, at least sort of in our circles. Uh, when they when they went to kill it in 2013, they said, you know, it is this is time to move on. It has a loyal user base, but we want to focus on other things. Uh, there were a bunch of petitions, including one on change.org with over 100,000 signatures to bring it back. <laughs> and a lot of people were really afraid that it was going to kill RSS reading on the web. But what we've seen in the year since 2013 is this explosion of RSS services and apps. So you have Feedly being the biggest, but then you have Feedbin and the old reader and, I mean, just on and on and on. 
and you have a bunch of clients that can hook up to those services. And so it hasn't really gone away. I'm sure there are people who haven't used it since Google Reader went away. But if you're still interested in this, there's lots of ways to do it, even though Google has gotten gotten out of it. But I was really sad when it went away because I really, I really loved it. Okay, so Stephen, well, hold on. This is a learning experience for a, a a young man like me. So you need an RSS aggregator, right? Someone who pulls all the feeds in and kind of makes like this is technology, or is is that what happens? Is that a correct assumption or no? Now there are clients that can work without the central service, but the model definitely in the past has been. Uh, you know, it's like I use Feedbin, for instance. I pay them, you know, whatever it is, a year. And I subscribe to all my feeds in a client, though. So I use Reader, okay. um, R-E-E-D-E-R, as the client. And it syncs with Feedbin. So no matter what device I'm on, it's all it's all synced up. Mm. And Feedbin is crawling them in a central location. But now even Reader can do it without a sync service. So it just kind of depends on on uh, what your what your sort of desired setup is. There's lots of options now, and, and there weren't a ton of them sure. back in the Google Reader days because that was just good enough for everybody. And so we've seen it sort of expand uh, since its death, which is not what I would have predicted in 2013. Well, I will have to check RSS out because I really haven't used it very much in the past. I've, I've used it before. I know what it is. Obviously, podcasts are a different type of medium that is syndicated. Is we're talking via an RSS feed if you're listening to this. <laughs> well, you know, I still get all my news from uh, from Usenet, so I'll try and look into RSS. Not TikTok. Mm, what's that? That's a Kesha song. I think we did it. We we talked about a bunch of dead Google stuff. They're ruthless. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't kill anything. Never fall care. in love with a Google service that's not yeah. Gmail. That's the lesson. <laughs> or YouTube. Fingers crossed. What if they just killed YouTube one day? I'd need to make more podcasts. If you want to read a bunch about these services, we have some links over on the website at relay.fm slash flashback slash 18. There you can get in touch. Uh, There's an email link. You can find us on Twitter and online as well. Quinn, where can people find you? People can find me on the internet at SnazzyQ and then on YouTube at Snazzy Labs or youtube.com slash snazzy. Just search my name. You'll find me. I host a bunch of other shows here on Relay FM, and I write over at 512pixels.net and um, ISMH on Twitter. And I guess uh, we should thank our sponsor. A big thanks to Command Line Heroes and their new season for sponsoring the show this week. Go check them out. And until next time, Quinn, say goodbye. Goodbye. Bye, y'all.